Good morning, and if you can make your way back to your seats, we're going to begin in just a moment. We're in the midst of our series, Seeing Christ in All of Scripture. For guests, my name is C.B. Etter, and I'm the senior pastor of Christ Community Church, and we want to welcome all of you. So glad to have you with us. Our prayer is that you would really encounter the love of God in Christ and would turn your heart wholeheartedly to Jesus this morning. We're going to be reading uh, this morning from Genesis 26 through Genesis 36. We're going through the books of the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, and just seeing Christ um, in all of Scripture. And I'm excited to share the Lord's Supper with you at the end of the service. Um, and just to see Christ in these wonderful sections of Scripture in Genesis. Um, as we turn to Genesis 26, um, I want to uh, draw your attention to one other event that we're going to be having this upcoming week, and that would be uh, we're going to be having a Genesis night uh, this Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. at the church house. We've got a lot going on. We have a women's Bible study. We also have a uh, women's book study. We have a men's Bible study starting on Tuesday night. Um, this event was added in uh, a couple months ago, and uh, but we want to highlight it in the schedule for this week. Um, recognize maybe not everybody will be able to be there, but it's particularly going to be a, a time for us to have an interactive night together as a church family with uh, the way we've been seeing Christ in the book of Genesis together in our personal quiet times. Um, also, it's going to be a time for personal prayer, personal ministry. Um, our aim is going to be to really see Christ in Genesis together and hear your insights, um, but also to have some prayer and personal ministry, some prophetic ministry, uh, one to another. So if you come, come ready to be ministered unto and, and come ready to minister to others as well. Um, I want to encourage you to come. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to have a brief uh, teaching on the wonderful passage that I'm actually going to be touching on a little bit today here on the, the mysterious and glorious passage where Jacob wrestles with God. So I'm going to do a brief devotional teaching at Genesis night on that Wednesday night. So really excited about that. And uh, if you can make it, it'll be at 7 p.m. at the church house this upcoming Wednesday. Um, it is so good to see you all. So good to be here to worship Jesus Christ together with you. Uh, how good it is to be loved by Him. Amen? Amen. Well, Genesis 26-36, through 36, I'm not going to be able to read all ten chapters. I wish I could. Um, but I'm going to read just different sections uh, throughout like we've been doing in the previous weeks. And um, so let's begin with Genesis chapter 26. Verses 1 through 5. Let's read God's word together. Now, there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven 
and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Go to verse 23 and 24, a little bit further on in Isaac's life. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. And let's look also at chapter 28. Verses 10 through 17. Genesis 28, verses 10 through 17. This is now Isaac's son, Jacob. And you're going to see some real similarities to the sections we just read. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. It's going to really come back to some of you. This passage is wonderful. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Can't resist here a connection. John 1 51, Jesus uses this exact description of the ladder again. Talking about this time, he's not at the top of it, he's at the bottom of it. Because he has descended in his incarnation. And he is the stairway, the ladder to heaven for any who trust in him. And here he is, the pre-incarnate Christ. (laughs) Got to keep it together here. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. It's a little north of Jerusalem. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. And then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. 
And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. And you see here the response to God's covenant love where Jacob pledges devotion to God, just like we should pledge our devotion to his lordship and to his rule and reign. Uh, Let's go now to 33, chapter 33. We're going to read verses 22 through 32 in a passage I'll dig out a little bit more Wednesday night. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, this is Jacob, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Love that passage. And then chapter 35, verses 9 through 15. Let's read. This will be our final one before we pray. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. And then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him. Bethel. And this is at the same exact spot where he had the vision earlier. So the title of the message this morning is Isaac, Jacob, and their faithful God. Isaac, Jacob, and their faithful God. Let's pray together. Almighty God, this morning as we look at your word, I pray that we would be blown away by your promise that comes to sinful men. Your promise, your gospel promise, comes to men and women who, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, I pray that we would see Jesus in these Scriptures and that we would marvel, Lord God, at Your faithfulness, Your covenant faithfulness to Your people down through the ages. We are so thankful for your faithfulness to your people Israel, for your faithfulness to us. 
your people. And we ask, Lord, that our amazement at your lavish grace and our confidence and peace at your absolute control would touch our hearts and strengthen us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, i got two points here this morning from the, this section of Scripture. And the first one is God's lavish grace. God's lavish grace. And secondly, God's absolute control. God's absolute control. So let's look first at God's lavish grace. That phrase, lavish, is just super abundant grace that comes to his people is a reference from Ephesians chapter 1 in a passage many of you would know. The Word of God says in Ephesians 1, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. I love that phrase, church. There's riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So we have redemption through the blood of Christ and the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. This grace of God it has been defined as God's unmerited favor. It's His unmerited favor. That's a good short definition of grace. Uh, Another definition, which is a little bit more robust, still short, but more robust, would be that God's grace is God's favor in Christ to sinners who deserve His wrath. God's favor in Christ to sinners who deserve His wrath. We looked at this last week when we looked at Abraham and the promise, how it came to him. He was in a nation originally called Ur, the Chaldeans, that worshipped the moon. It wasn't that Abraham, from the time he grew up, knew and loved God, but before he was even in his mother's womb, God knew and loved Abraham. And so the promise comes to Abraham, even though His life is riddled with sin both before he was chosen by God and and called by God to come out from his people and go to the promised land, to a land God would show him. And, And it was also after he was called that he still sinned and struggled. We looked at that last week and saw the flaws as well as the faith of Abraham. But God's promise comes to sinners. And this is good news to us. It's lavish grace. It's unmerited favor or God's favor in Christ to sinners who deserve His wrath. We see that story continue here in Genesis chapter 26 with the life of Isaac. And it's the same promise. This promise stays true from Abraham to Isaac and to Jacob, and the promise is one and the same all the way throughout Genesis, all the way through to Revelation. And the promise is this, that through your offspring, Abraham, through your offspring, Isaac, through your offspring, Jacob, all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through your offspring. 
this is a description in the Old Testament of God bringing forth the line that Jesus Christ comes from. And that's why whenever you see this repeated promise, through your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's the Gospel in the Old Testament. And you see it here in Genesis, both to Abraham, and then you see it here in these repeated passages. That's why I highlighted those of this promised one who is to come. This promised offspring who is the the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the snake, crush the head of the serpent, Satan. It's going to be Jesus Christ who does this, who we will remember through the Lord's Supper at the end of the service. And He has indeed come. But here He is a promise who is to come. All the saints in the Old Testament, I love this, this is fascinating. All the saints in the Old Testament were saved the same way we're saved. It was through faith in the promised one who for them was the promised one who was to come. Christ. Believing and having faith in the promise was what saved them, just as it is with us. We believe in Christ and we look back at the cross. The saints in the Old Testament looked forward to the cross. And so it's all together Faith in Christ, who is the promised one here to Abraham and also to Isaac. But you see, it's not just the promised one or the promised offspring, but it's also the promised land. The promised one is going to bless all the nations of the earth. God's going to bless all the nations of the earth through him. But also, God's going to deliver his people, his covenant people, to the promised land as well. And so throughout Genesis, it's all about this repetition of the promised one and the promised land. Christ is coming and also Canaan is coming or the the, the promised land that they were looking forward to. And you see God's people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they sojourn and they end up in this promised land. And God visits them and speaks to them and says, This is the land that I'm talking about. I'm going to give this land to you and to your offspring forever. And what's glorious about this, brothers and sisters, is that's pointing to not just the the Jerusalem that exists right now, the Israel that exists right now, the land that exists right now geographically, but that land is speaking also to the new Jerusalem who's to come, that's to come down from heaven out of God in the book of Revelation, the the literal, physical, new heavens and new earth that we are going to enjoy together with Christ forever and ever. In other words, heaven. It's going to have a glorious city within it called the new Jerusalem, and it's going to be surrounded by the new Israel land, and it's going to be the entire earth is going to be renewed and remade after the final judgment happens, and it's going to be more glorious and wonderful when God brings about the new heavens and new earth when Christ returns and sets up His eternal throne. And I I just love how all of Scripture is connected. I love how these promises to God's old covenant people Israel continue forth into the new covenant and we are blessed through these promises here that are given actually 
to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I just love it. I love the way it's all connected and the way God's Word heralds Christ from beginning to end, don't you? I'm really enjoying going through our Bible reading plan together and our devotions. I have the March Bible reading program. Um, There's hard copies in the back at the information table on your way out if um, you didn't get the email that I sent with the March Bible reading program on it please feel free to pick up a hard copy of that and, and utilize that and benefit as we go through our March devotions. Because after we get out of Genesis, we're going to proceed into Exodus. And I can't wait to study Exodus with you and see the awesome power of God and salvation to His people, Israel, out of Egypt. So there's the promised offspring and the promised land. And we see God lavishing His grace on Abraham, but also on Isaac. Isaac, was not worthy in and of himself to receive this gospel promise. And we see this in that immediately after he receives this promise, you see the story in verse 6 of Isaac and Abimelech. And that story is very, very familiar to those of you who have been reading through Genesis with us. um, Because Abraham, Isaac's father, sinned twice in the same exact way that Isaac, his son, sins here. In that he lies to Abimelech and tells Abimelech that Rebekah is his sister and not his wife. And so we see that he follows in the pathway of his father, Abraham, and he lies and and. And it really ends up being a situation where it's really driven by fear that he deceives this king that was in the land of Canaan at this time. So his fear sort of drives him. And this is awesome to think that God gave his precious promise to a man who he knew was going to fail him immediately afterward and fail him many times afterward as well. And What we learn from that is God's grace is greater than we're even aware of. He chooses sinful people and saves them by His grace and gives them the covenant promise. And then He he is patient with His people. He is merciful and compassionate towards their ongoing struggles. And... This sin is significant in the eyes of God, and yet God doesn't give up on Isaac simply because he sins and fails in this way. Matthew Henry writing about the, uh, the, the sin of Isaac here and lying to Abimelech and saying that Rebekah was his sister and not his wife, says this, There is nothing in Isaac's denial of his wife to be imitated nor even excused. The temptation of Isaac is the same as that which overcame his father, and that in two instances. This rendering his conduct the greater sin. The falls of those who are gone before us are so many rocks on which others have split, and the recording of them is like placing buoys to save future mariners. So we want to look and learn from the example. We should never be driven by fear fear in our lives, but driven by faith and trust in God. Isaac's fears tempt him right after he receives the gospel in the Old Testament. He falls into 
sin, of deception and fear, and kind of really puts his wife in a very compromising situation. And God looked out for him and looked out for Rebecca and protected them. And actually, amazingly, not only protected them, but also blessed Isaac in this land so that when he sowed, he actually reaped a hundredfold in one year as he sowed in this land of Gerar. But this was a time of temptation. It was a time of trial and hardship for Isaac. We learn later on in the chapter that he goes back to his father Abraham's wells and he starts to dig them up so that they can get fresh water. And the wells are contended over, one after the other, until he opens up one well called Rehoboth, which is where you get the name Rehoboth Beach today. It's actually here in Genesis chapter 26. And the individual who named Rehoboth Beach, Rehoboth Beach, uh, named it after this section in Genesis 26. Rehoboth means broad place, and it was one of the wells that wasn't disputed here. In Genesis 26, I just thought that was a cool fact from the passage that I thought some of you would enjoy. But God's promise precedes Isaac's stumbling. God's promise precedes our stumbling as well. You see this in Isaac's life. You see it in Rebecca's life. You see grace in her life. Um, you see it in their son, Jacob, as well. And I want to uh, just look in on Jacob's life here and, and just kind of highlight that his name actually, before the name was changed by God, which is a real description of the transformation that God's grace brought about in his life, the name for Jacob actually means supplanter. And, and actually Esau, when Esau's deceived by Jacob, he says his name's rightly called Jacob because he's cheated me. So there's a connection between Jacob, his very name is to act deceitfully or to cheat or to supplant. And uh, this description is right from the very beginning seen as he's an infant coming out of the womb. It's a fascinating passage, but as Rebecca's giving birth to Jacob and Esau, Jacob grasps onto Esau's heel, and it's an image of him striving to, to supplant and uh, to pull himself ahead. And so he's a, he's a deceiver. He, he manipulates, he cheats, he strives. And there's actually a self-sufficiency about Jacob that God conquers later when he renames him Israel. And it's a beautiful story of God's grace in the Old Testament, Jacob's is, and one that should also give us encouragement that God lavishes grace upon his chosen people. Church, take comfort in the fact that God has not just lavished grace on Isaac. He's not just lavished grace on Jacob. He has lavished grace for every sinner in this room who has trusted in Jesus Christ, the promised one who has now come, He forgives all of your sins. He transforms you into a new creation in Jesus Christ. And you are no longer dead in sin, but you are now alive in God. You have been on the receiving end of God's unmerited favor. You don't deserve it, neither do I. But you've received it because God has chosen in His mercy to give His favor in Christ to you. 
a sinner who deserved His wrath. I am on the receiving end of God's lavish grace as well. I am a sinner. And God has chosen to pour forth His favor in Christ to this sinner who deserves His wrath. I'm so thankful for His grace, aren't you? Aren't you so grateful? So from holding on to the heels of men to holding on vigorously to God, there's a striving with Jacob that carries over into his relationship with God, but it's a a striving that's actually no longer deceitful and cunning. It's a striving that actually pleases the Lord. It's a striving that prevails with God, that holds on to God and says, I won't let you go until you bless me. He is beginning to be transformed into a man who goes from striving against men to striving with God. And may that characterize all of us as well by God's grace. From prevailing deceitfully over men to prevailing honorably and courageously with God in prayer. This is the type of prevailing, this is the type of wrestling that glorifies God and shows the transformation of His grace. Derek Kidner, writing about Jacob wrestling with God in the passage that we read, said this about it. The conflict brought to a head the battling and groping of a lifetime. This marked Jacob's life. God chastened his pride and challenged his tenacity. He would have all of Jacob's will to win, to attain, and obtain yet purged of self-sufficiency and redirected to the proper object of man's love, God Himself. So God conquers Jacob's self-sufficient pride and, and, and blesses this man who, who was driven so much with a will to win in life by ceasing to attain and obtain the things of this world. No longer is this man going to be grasping for the things of the world any longer, grasping to the heel of a man, he's going to be grasping onto the being of God. And that's a great definition, brothers and sisters, of what our relationship with God is to look like. We want to not lose the will to win in life, but we redefine it now, not as the world defines winning. Winning now is grabbing on to Jesus Christ with all that you have and saying, oh Lord, I won't let go until you bless me. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Forgive me of all of my sins. Oh Lord, use me in this short life that I have to live for you. May my ambition and my striving and all of my will to win be directed in laying hold of you in your ways. Ah. That's awesome. And I'm looking forward to getting into that a little bit deeper with you on Wednesday night. So he came out of that experience a changed man and a newly named man, which symbolized the transformation of grace. He was no longer called Jacob from that point forward, but Israel, he has striven with God and men and has prevailed. This, This name Israel carries with it valor. It carries with it 
perseverance. And brothers and sisters, perseverance and courage and valor are to mark all of God's people. It's interesting that he names him Israel, but he's actually in this moment naming every single one of us as well. The people of God, Old Covenant and New, are one in Christ, Ephesians 2.12 says. We have all been united together with Christ through faith. Old Testament saints looking forward to Christ. New Testament saints looking backward at the cross of Christ as a finished work that has been accomplished. His death on the cross and resurrection from the dead achieved. We are Israel in the sense of we are a people who prevail. We are a people who are called in Revelation to the one who overcomes. We are active. We are vigorous in seeking after God, even as the prophetic word came forward this morning, that we are to draw near to God. Our our faith is meant to be very active, even as we rest in God's wonderful grace and His lavish grace and love that never ceases toward His people. So God comes to Isaac and makes promises to him, even though he's still a flawed man. God comes to Jacob and makes promises to him. One of the things I love is that God's steadfast love and God's initiative to keep coming toward Jacob was the same when his name was Jacob, defined as the supplanter, as the sinner, as the initiative he took toward Jacob after he renamed him Israel. And he was a new creation in Christ. God continues to love him before he was saved. And God continues to be with him and never leave him or fail him after he's saved. And I'm so thankful to God for the love that while we were still sinners, before we even knew Christ, Christ died for us. I'm so thankful for the grace that even after we've known Christ all these years and we still struggle like we do every day, we can sing with confidence, church. Oh no, you never let go. Lord, you never let go of me. Aren't you so thankful for that, church? Uh, My wife Shannon sent this quote to me the other day. Dear doubting Christian, when Abraham counted the stars, he was counting you. I love that. Twice here we see in the passages that I read that God actually says to Abraham and to Isaac, look up and count the stars if you can. This is going to be, your offspring are going to be as numerous as the dust of the earth and your offspring are going to be as numerous as the stars that you can see in the sky. And when God promised this, this is so vital, He had you in mind, beloved. You are one of those Stars, you are one of those children. You are one of those ones amongst all the nations of the earth that God has blessed through the promised one who has come. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Church, there are so many areas that I look at in my life where I see my failures, I see my sins, and I wonder why would God favor me? With such gospel blessing. You ever think that? And I wonder at it. 
And it's right for us to be amazed, to be utterly dumbfounded by His lavish grace. Jacob has a beautiful prayer to God and as he's interacting with God. In Genesis 32, verse 10, it's a, it's a verse in Scripture here, if you turn to it, that all of us as Christians can say, I think it's also going to be projected, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. I'm not worthy. See, Jacob acknowledging grace. I'm not worthy of this, God. I'm not worthy to be sitting here in Christ Community Church today worshiping you. Lord, I'm deserving of being in the pit. I am deserving, Lord God, of being in hell, being punished and receiving your justice for my sins. And instead, what I have been on the receiving end is your grace. You have chosen, Almighty God, to punish my sins in Christ instead. To fully visit the justice that my sins deserve upon Christ instead of upon me. And I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. May Genesis 32.10, Jacob's praise to God, may that be the spirit of us, Christ community. We're not worthy, Lord, of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love let alone the greatest of deeds of your steadfast love, which was the cross and all the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. He does not stop. He does not stop coming. He does not stop taking initiative. He doesn't stop rescuing the wandering saint. He doesn't stop coming to them. He doesn't give up on his steadfast love for them. Brothers and sisters, this ought to amaze us and thank us and fill our hearts with joy. That God is a God like this. That we don't deserve it, but He freely gives it. Oh, does God's lavish grace move your soul to adoration and praise this morning? Look at how He has saved you. Look at how He has continued His steadfast love and faithfulness to you. Brother and sister, take comfort that in the midst of all you're going through right now, this lavish grace means that He sees you. He knows you. And He will protect you and deliver you. Again and again and again. You are an object of God's unmerited favor. You are forever the object of God's favor in Christ to sinners who deserve His wrath. And nothing is ever going to separate you from that love. And He's transforming your character. You were an old creation in the flesh and You are now a new creation in Christ. The Holy Spirit now dwells within you. It's like you've been given a new name. You've been transformed. You're not the same person you used to be. You are now, I am now C.B. Etter in Christ. And you are your name in Christ. That is what defines you. And not your sin. Because God has been merciful to you and I. He's changed us from who we used to be. 
And aren't you so thankful for that? There's so much. I, I, there's so much I could hit. Uh, Isaac is right where God wants him in this section in Genesis 26. Um, and yet, his life isn't easy. He's right in the middle of God's will. He's right where geographically he should be. And yet, at that time, there are painful trials that come. And brothers and sisters, it's important for us to remember that just because we're Christians doesn't mean we're just going to get this easy coast in life. That the Christian life is, is, is the hard road that leads to life, and few there be that find it. It's a narrow road. It's a rocky road. It's hard on the feet. But we, as the people of God, trust in Him, even as there's times of great trial and adversity. Temptation hits him. Difficulty hits him. And I want to drive home this principle. Please embrace it. You can be right in the center of God's will and yet face temptation and great difficulty. If life gets really hard, there's a temptation for us to say, God's not in this. We have to learn some vital lessons here. Because some of you are facing significant trials and times of great discomfort and unpleasantness. And let me encourage you with this, and I hope it gives some of you peace. That doesn't mean that you are not where God wants you to be. Again and again, Isaac is distressed. Again and again, Jacob is much afflicted. And his people are often much afflicted. He's about to take the entire nation to Egypt, where they're going to be temporarily fed and then put 400 years into slavery. This is the road toward heaven. We don't grasp for pleasure here on this earth. We look forward to the promised land that's to come. And may we all do that with all the heart and soul that we have. One final application with God's lavish grace. Let us all look at one another with eyes of grace as well. Let us look at people the way God looks at people. I was talking and having fellowship with John Reyes this week and just made a great point. And he, he asked, do we notice the flaws in people? Or do we notice the grace and the fruit? Do we see people with eyes of grace? Do we see people the way Christ sees people? The way God sees Jacob, a man still in process, and yet continues to pour out His covenant love? Brothers and sisters, let us all, as, as fathers and mothers, as children, look into our parents, as parents looking to our children and to our grandchildren, as we look out at our family, immediate and extended, and as we look at coworkers. As we look at the world, may we remember that this is God's story and that God is in control. And let us look at the world with God's eyes. God's eyes of grace and God's eyes of trust. Let our hearts be filled with His perspective on people and not what our flesh's perspective can be. I hope that practical application encourages you like it did my own soul. Well, 
I want to hit this final point uh, quickly, but it's one that is really, really just an absolute theme throughout. It's called God's absolute control. And I'm going to be able to only skim over it. Like I was saying to you, um, if you can be reading, next week we're going to preach Genesis 37 through 50. So we got uh, three more chapters than we hit in this 10 chapter section next, next week. We'll not be able to get into every detail in the sermon, but what I'm hoping is that as we're reading through it together, as I'm able to just kind of even dive into a chapter very quickly, that we'll all be kind of tracking with it because we've been digging in it ourselves personally. And um, I hope you enjoy that. God's absolute control. We see this in Genesis 27 in that this, this section here where Isaac blesses Jacob, Remember this, Rebecca's like eavesdropping on the conversation between Isaac and his son Esau. Isaac's wanting to give the blessing to Esau. He's not even the one through whom the blessing should come. And Rebecca's eavesdropping and, he, and, and Isaac sends Esau out to go and hunt game for him because he loves the game and he kind of has favor toward his son because he prepares a better meal for him. I mean, you're talking about just the absence of spirituality and carnality as it worked much in this chapter. You've got Rebecca pulling her son Jacob, whom she favors, aside. She's saying, hey, listen, let's work deceitfully to get your dad to give you the blessing instead of Esau. And so cook up a dish while your brother's out hunting and, and you come in and, and we'll, we'll, we'll steal the blessing from him. And Jacob's like, yeah, I'll go right along with that. Uh, my name's Deceiver. I'm good at this. So he goes in and he, he succeeds in deceiving his father East and and. Esau's out hunting, and the, the blessing which he had given up earlier is selling his birthright for a bowl of porridge. It's now taken away from him completely and deceitfully by his brother Jacob. Isaac's also the father. He's deceived in this. Rebecca's involved. They're all involved with sin. What affects me so much here is that the family of God is full of sin. And yet none of it thwarts God's plan, but only accomplishes it. I can't help but marvel at this church. They are fighting and striving for themselves with all the selfish motives in the world, and yet God is accomplishing His will at the same time. And then Jacob's family later on, after Laban, and he goes to Laban and he ends up marrying Leah. And he's deceived because he wanted to marry Rachel. And Laban instead gives him his oldest daughter, first Leah. And then Jacob's family is marked by polygamy. It's marked by immorality. It's marked by jealousy and strife and rivalry. And yet God accomplishes his will even through the means of sinful men and women. I, I just can't help but marvel at this. Think about this with me. God's will is accomplished even though man often grieves him. Praise God for his power and marvel at his ways. It is to his glory that he is not thwarted through human secondary causality. He is the primary cause of everything that comes to pass and sovereign over even the sinful actions of mankind rebelling against him, and somehow 
He works all things together for believers' good and works all things together to bring Him glory. It's amazing to me. God's sovereignty wins despite humanity's sins. Again and again and again and again. It's happening every single day, but it's happening in a microcosm here in this story playing out. It's an absolute mess from man's end and man's will's end, but it's perfection worked on God's end simultaneously. Man is responsible for his sin and held accountable of what evil he or she chooses to do, and yet God is always in control, brothers and sisters, orchestrating his plan, never tempted by evil, never responsible for evil, or the author of evil, even though he is in absolute control over evil at all times, even when it's committed. There's a mystery here, and yet there's also glory. It is to God's glory that he can take the mess of human sin and suffering that has been brought about through the fall and redeem it. And make the marred mess into something more glorious than it was in the beginning. That's awesome. And I brought this painting here today up in front of you. It's one of me and Shannon's favorite paintings that we bought to put in our home. It's called It's All Connected. It's painted by a man named Seth Remsnyder who uh, was attending our Harrisburg church, our Sovereign Grace Harrisburg church. And we saw his work and we just loved it. And we saw this one in particular. He has many like this, but this one's called It's All Connected. And I believe if I'm not mistaken, if I remember the story correctly, he painted this one after they lost one of their children. And it's a description how even our sin and even our suffering is all woven and integrated into this tapestry that God paints that ends up being a masterpiece. Christ turns disasters into masterpieces. He does it in Isaac's life. He does it in Jacob's life. It's a story. This story is a story of God's faithfulness to sinners who deserve His wrath, to sinners who have failed Him again and again. And neither our sin nor our suffering take heart, dear beloved brothers and sisters can stop him from turning the disasters we have made into masterpieces of his grace. That's awesome. And God is doing that in your life. I, I want you to take heart and know that every single detail of your life and your family, you might look in your family, your extended family, and just say, oh, CP, Pastor, this, my life is a mess and my family's life is a mess. Listen, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I don't know how he does it, but he takes all of it and he works it all together for your good of those who love him. And it is an awesome tapestry that he weaves. And I am so thankful for God. It's like in the fall, what we did is we took a, a beautiful, clean canvas and we, and we were, God made it beautiful. And it's like we took buckets of just sin and paint and just threw it all over the canvas and marred it. 
it's to the glory of this painter that he can come and make a masterpiece, not out of a clean canvas like the Sistine Chapel or, or some beautiful piece from Van Gogh. He takes something that we've made a mess and he moves and he paints a tapestry of his beauty, a masterpiece of his creation. That is what he's doing in his people. That is what he's doing in his church. That is what he's doing in your life, beloved. And if you can lay hold of that, as you see him work his plan, it couldn't have gotten more dysfunctional. It couldn't have gotten more ugly in terms of the betrayals and rivalries and deceit and the cunning and the... And yet God is not thwarted. He's not hindered, but rather accomplishing. His perfect and good, pleasing and perfect will through all these things. That is a glorious painter. That is a worker of a masterpiece that we will praise Him for forever and ever, church. And I can't say anything better than that. So one of the ushers come forward and let's prepare our hearts for communion. And thank Him for what He did for us in sending the promised One to come. Because this promise was fulfilled. Ushers, thank you for serving us the elements for communion. Let us begin to prepare our hearts for it, even right now, church. You see the beauty of what God weaves in your life, and even the dark lines that you actually wish were never painted. If you could do it yourself, you never would have added the dark lines in it. God has connected all of it and interwoven it into a beautiful masterpiece. How kind God is to give us the assurance of knowing this. Church, we must never do evil that good may come. We must never say, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? No, we confess and we forsake our sins. And let us confess and forsake our sins, even as we were admonished by the Holy Spirit this morning. But let us also take comfort that even in the midst of our flaws and our failures and our sins, God is fulfilling His glorious purposes in and through our lives. And even in the painful consequences of what Isaac and Jacob had to live through because of their sin, some of those consequences lived on for many years. God stands with us even in the consequences of our past sins. And His steadfast love is not removed from us even then. It's crazy that this section that we read this morning ends in Genesis 36. And you look at that section and you realize, what is a list of Esau's descendants, what does that have to do really with 
anything really important. Well, God said, Jacob I love, Esau I hated. But God cares about Esau's descendants, and Esau's descendants are chronicled. This is a history in Genesis 36 of Esau is going to possess his land, the land of Seir. And during the next 400 years for Esau, there's going to be prosperity on this earth. There's going to be kings that actually come and get raised up and chiefs, and Esau's going to prosper. And he does. But God takes his people to Egypt into 400 years of slavery. And yet, the ones who are in slavery are the favored ones. The ones who are in the wilderness are his favored ones, his chosen ones. And the reason for that is, the worst of circumstances in the world cannot take this away from us. We have been chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. We have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. Through the shed blood of the promised offspring who came, Jesus Christ. Who, like His people Israel, suffered His body to go through suffering and affliction. Stood by His people all the way through it in the Old Testament. And then came and took on flesh and suffered with us as the God-man who understands what it's like to suffer the afflictions of the fall. He did that willingly for us so that all of us in here who have repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus, we can partake the Lord's Supper right now, the broken body, and the shed blood of our Lord. And realize that for us, Jacob's ladder has become a reality. There would have been no way for us to get to heaven to be with God. But the Lord, Yahweh Himself, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, didn't stay at the top of the ladder. He descended it to rescue you and I through His broken body and His shed blood. Oh, won't you believe, unbeliever? Won't you trust in Him? He's an awesome Lord. He's an awesome Savior. And church, let us marvel at His grace that we, like Jacob said, are unworthy of the least of all the deeds of His steadfast love and faithfulness that He's done unto us. And yet, He has done it. And He continues to do it. Let us remember the broken body of our now risen Savior and say thank you to Him as we partake of the bread. Grace is God's 
unmerited favor in Christ to sinners who deserve His wrath. The wrath of God for our sins would have been upon us, beloved, forever in hell. Had this promise not been fulfilled, God sent His promised one, the offspring of Isaac and Jacob, to come from the tribe of Judah. To live a perfect life. To die a sinless death. And shed His blood. To redeem us from our sins. And to atone for all of our transgressions. So for those of us who are in Christ. We have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. We have the propitiation of the wrath that once stood against us. It's now satisfied. And we will never ever need to absorb the wrath of God ourselves. Because Christ took it fully in our place on the cross. Let us partake of the cup and thank Him and remember Him for His blood. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, if Tom and the worship team can return, we're going to sing. We need to sing. Because He's an awesome God, isn't He, church? Isn't He worthy of our praise and our devotion and our worship? Let us all stand. We're going to sing, Lord, you are gracious. Many of you may have heard that Billy Graham went on to be with Jesus this past week. My wife Shannon sent this quote to me. Someday you will read or hear. It's from Billy. Someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. That good news of us going into the promised land is the same that Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob received. And all of that is possible because the promised offspring was to come, Jesus Christ, died on the cross and rose again from the grave and for those who have repented their sins and trusted in Jesus you are united in Christ by faith and united with Christ by faith and what Billy said is true of every one of us in here who have believed aren't you so thankful church that Christ has turned our disaster into a masterpiece and he's turning our disasters into a masterpiece and we won't even fully know the full beauty until we get to heaven where Billy is now I'm looking forward to going there aren't you I can't wait to see Jesus face to face and I can't wait to enjoy him forever with you church God bless you and have a wonderful week and remember Christ's love for you God bless you Thank you.